Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This week on WealthTrack, award-winning financial planner Mark Bertazzo on the extreme danger of portfolio volatility in retirement. He is next on Consuelo Mack WealthTrack. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. Our focus this week, the challenge facing most of us, not running out of money in retirement. Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist Richard Thaler recently called the drawing down of money in retirement way harder than the saving phase because of the uncertainty of how long we will live. He is proposing adding 401k funds to Social Security to increase monthly payouts. This week's guest wholeheartedly agrees with Saylor about the difficulty of the spend-down phase and says another largely unrecognized danger is portfolio volatility, which can mean the difference between solvency and insolvency at the end of life. He has the research to prove it. He is Mark Cortazzo, a certified financial planner, founder and senior partner of Macro Consulting Group, an independent wealth management firm established in 1992. Forbes recognized Cortazzo as one of America's top wealth advisors, and he has been named a Barron's top advisor for nine years, among many other recognitions. He is also a WealthTrack regular. Cortazzo has done a number of studies showing how the accumulation phase of investing assets for retirement, if done regularly and systematically over many years, can make just about anyone feel like a genius. However, once the withdrawals begin, what the pros call the decumulation phase, it's a whole different ballgame. What works so well in building up a nest egg can be a disaster when taking it apart. The accumulation phase um, isn't timing dependent. It's time dependent. So if you are, um, we, we did studies going back over 90 years and, and looked at if you put money away every month, regardless of when you started, um, your compounded rate of return over long periods of time of what you would expect and what you received, even if your timing was very bad, bottom 5% of, t- of timing on when you started doing that. Mm-hmm. But you did it for the same period of time. Uh, so, look, 30, we're assuming 30 right, years. A 30-year right. period of time. If you dollar cost averaged $5,000 a month into the market, and we started back in the 20s, and we, we started in February, went forward 30 years March, 30 years. So we have hundreds of 30-year periods mm-hmm. that we looked at. Right. Um, your expected rate of return was about 11% in, in the middle. If you and, and for those of us out there who are saying, that, no, 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 that's way too high, you're saying, no, these, this is your the 11% return is from dollar cost averaging, right. the compounding effect, yes. the total return, yeah, so everything, right? W- long-term buying and just holding stocks over that 90-plus year period of time was for blue-chip stocks was about 10% a year. Yeah. So you actually got a little bit of enhanced performance by buying when the markets had those dips and, and enhanced right. your performance because you had multiple entry points. So that's still a reasonable expectation for a 30-year period of time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 30-year period of time, okay. sure. Yeah. If you're dollar-cost averaging in. Right. So um, if you had terrible timing, 
and you started, and it was the bottom 5% of all of these hundreds and hundreds of, of periods we observed, mm-hmm. you still did 8.5% a year compounded rate of return on your money. When you're talking about the bottom 5%, as far as you know, timing is concerned, yep. that's when you're buying at market highs. Correct. Right. You, you, you bought, at, and we looked at all, all of the hundreds of different 30-year periods. We ranked them, and we looked at the bottom 5%. So, like, you know, got in terrible timing, but you consistently put the money away. Mm-hmm. You were a disciplined investor. You had that you know, fortitude to keep plowing the money in. You still averaged 8.5% a year. Mm-hmm. And what happens with accumulators is I think that they get lulled into this false sense of security that, that they were a great investor, you know, or that they had this great experience or they were lucky. And it was their fortitude and their discipline mm-hmm. to continue doing it that gave them a great experience. So, well, it actually, and that's accurate. Yes. You know, right. Discipline, consistent, automatic investing over a 30-year period. Produ- you come out of the other end, no matter kind of ways you said, what you did, when you started or whatever. I will tell you, you that, that. You do okay. I, it, it, correct. Right. And, and so people come to us who were good investors. Right. You know, I, my, my investment's five times what I put in. I put in $1.8 million, 5000 a month for, for 30 years. And my account value is eight million bucks. Mm-hmm. I did a great job. Mm-hmm. You did a terrible job relative. You didn't do a terrible job. Your timing was terrible, to, and and you you actually had a, a very low percentage experience relative to others. But it still was a great experience. Right. And the the number that knocked my socks off was the worst thirty year period. The depression seventy three seventy four correction, oh eight crash. Still did six and a half percent a year mm-hmm. compounded rate of return, mm-hmm. better than inflation, better than bonds. Just do it. Right. The gotcha. worst, the worst out of all of the hundreds and hundreds of thirty-year periods we observed. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so the message, right, for people who are in the accumulation phase is just do it. Just do it. Yeah. And and no matter what's happening, put your blinders on, put your headphones on, and and just do just it. keep investing. Yeah. Yes. But the fact is that there is a certain amount of hubris that when you're dealing with the accumulators who have had such a great experience in accumulating their assets and savings for retirement. So what are the biggest mistakes that they make in making the transition from the accumulation phase, the transition to retirement, where they're actually taking money out of all of those funds that they've accumulated? They think the things that were additive and beneficial as an accumulator will be additive and beneficial as a decumulator, and it couldn't be further apart. So what are the things that that are beneficial to you as an accumulator that are harmful to you uh, as as you start withdrawing funds from your portfolio? So volatility and time were their friend as an accumulator. Right. And volatility and time become their enemy as a decumulator. So the longer I'm putting that money in, the more likelihood I'm going to get close to that long-term expected rate of return. Mm -hmm. And the more volatility I have, I'm buying on more severe swings. It actually enhances that performance. As a decumulator, volatility is your enemy. So the sequence that performance occurs and, and timing and volatility are critical to your outcome as a decumulator. And time becomes your enemy. The longer you're retired, the greater the probability is that you'll run out of money. The longer you invest as an accumulator, the better your, your outcome and your probability of a good outcome is going to be. So it, it is literally 180 degrees that right. the things that are most helpful and beneficial and that, that helped you succeed to create money, create wealth, 
when you start drawing down from it, and especially if you have a, a, reasonably, a reasonable withdrawal rate, those are things that can be very, very devastating to the spectrum of your outcome. So the market will be volatile. Yes. Therefore, why is volatility so harmful as you are making these with monthly withdrawals from your retirement account? So we did an analysis of somebody who had a 60-40 mix of stocks to bonds, and they indexed. So, you know, we're just going to use market performance, market volatility, right. no fees, you know, to make it easy. And that shouldn't be as volatile a portfolio as, right. as the straight, straight in stocks. Correct. And, and I think people that are getting close to retirement, they want some fixed income to, to have that. So that, you know, balanced to moderate growth portfolio is very, very common what we see. Right. Um, so if you are taking a 5% withdrawal rate, you had a million dollars, you're taking out $50,000 a year, your expected chance of running out of money during a 30-year retirement is only about 10%, okay? It's very manageable risk. And, and even those chances of running out of money are pretty deep into retirement. Mm-hmm. So if you have a little bit of a hit to your portfolio, like we experienced this last December, you know, and a 60-40 portfolio goes from a million dollars down to $850,000, a 15% hit. That happens frequently. Mm-hmm. Not an 08 devastation or the depression that, you know, the thing that everyone's afraid of isn't the thing that's the greatest risk to them um, or the probability of, of the mm-hmm. greatest risk to them. A little bit of a hit, $850,000 starting value, and you still need that same $50,000 a year. Right. The, you know, the fact that the market dropped the, the day, the month, the year before you retired mm-hmm. and brought your portfolio down to 850, I was planning on needing 50 grand a year during my retirement. Your chance of running out of money goes from about 10% to more than 30% chance you'll run out of money during your retirement. Wow, just with that little bit of little bit yeah. of volatility on the front end changes, triples mm-hmm. your chance of, of you running out of money during retirement. We've all been encouraged to do you know, automatic savings, uh, dollar cost averaging, you know, put the same amount in every month, whatever it is. You can't just flip that and say, okay, from now on, I'm going to take the same amount of money automatically out of my account every month, regardless of market circumstances. It doesn't work that way. Correct. So what does work? How do you handle the market volatility? So um, there are a lot of different things that people can do. And, and it really is, is, is what sacrifices are you willing to make if there's, if there's mm-hmm. a problem. And so um, it may be that if the market corrects right before you're about to retire, you work another year or two if you are able to. Mm-hmm. It may be that you, if in the first few years, it's that it's those first five years of retirement, the first few years before retirement, the first five years into retirement, that are really, really going to set the trajectory on everything. Mm-hmm. If you get a, you know, when, when the markets go up on average, go back the last 90 years, the average up market's 21% up. And the average down market's 6% down. So mm-hmm. you're going to know, did you get a fast start and you're ahead of schedule where now your withdrawal rate's a lower percentage and you have a much safer probability of not running out. You have less time mm-hmm. and you have a lower percentage. You're in great shape. Go live your life. Enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. If you have a hit and now it's, it's having that discussion before you retire, what are you willing to do? Maybe it's work part-time and make $25,000 a year where you're mm-hmm. only drawing 25 from the portfolio, not the full 50. Maybe it's you're willing to use the equity in your home mm-hmm. if you get to that point where you realize you're going to have a higher probability of running out of money and maybe I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice and, and use the equity in my home later on. And those are all triggers and things that, that if you have them available to you, you at least are making deliberate decisions. It, it's like a fire drill. If, if the building caught on fire right now, what would you do? I'd grab this important thing and that important mm-hmm. thing and here's my exit. Hopefully we're never going to need to execute on that, but 
while the building's on fire, after I told you the building's on fire, I ask you, what are you going to do? You know, it is, it's not going to be as effective of conversation because it's going to be very emotionally driven mm -hmm. as opposed to practical on what are the things I'm willing to do. It may be annuitizing some of your money. Morningstar did a great study. If you annuitize a small piece of your portfolio, it was about a quarter or less than a quarter of your portfolio. Mm -hmm. It gives you an outsized cash flow relative to what you would normally withdraw. Right, and this is throughout retirement, for instance. Just Correct. have an annuity as part of your portfolio. Yeah, if you, portfolio. You, you took a little bit of your money and you said, I'm going to convert this principal into a cash flow for the rest of right. my life for a small piece. Right. It takes the withdrawal rate on the rest of your portfolio down dramatically. Mm -hmm. And the longer you live, the greater the rate of return is on that annuity because you're getting payments for a longer and longer period of time. Very nice natural hedge. The really interesting thing about the study was since I'm not taking as much money from the stock part of my portfolio, mm -hmm. it allows that to, even though it's a smaller amount to start with, it compounds at a greater rate because I'm not drawing as much from the stocks over a longer period of time. It actually has a greater ending value, expected ending value, and a lower chance of running out of money. It's less risk with a higher expected return. That doesn't happen often when you're you know, investing, that you right. get a lower risk mm -hmm. with a higher mm -hmm. return. Mm -hmm. So um, it really is that, that honest conversation. Some people aren't willing to do that. Maybe they build a bond ladder mm -hmm. and they can say, I, it, that will buy me time mm -hmm. if the market's down. I've got five years worth of income that I can use to draw. Uh, but it really is, uh, and, and you know, we've had our last couple of major bear markets have recovered within that window of time. Right. And, and it, it prevented you from being forced to sell stocks at the wrong time. Um, having a ladder, you know, if you need $50,000 a year and we build a portfolio that has $50,000 of bonds coming due every year for a five-year period, right. if the market's up, we sell from the, the profit and we take that bond that's coming due and we put it at the back end. Mm -hmm. And we always have five years worth of time that we've bought ourselves I see. with that strategy. Mm -hmm. So these are all mitigators. They all have their pros and cons. Right. Um, you know, and, and it really is modeling this to that client's risk willingness and ability to take risk and what their preferences are. How do we have a portfolio that's, that will adapt um, to, to market declines? Because we, we will go through market declines right. throughout our retirement. Yeah, and, and what we're not, we're not trying to time the market. We're yeah. trying to have alternatives to being forced to sell equities when they're depressed. When you're drawing from the portfolio, because the market gets hit and I sell shares of the stock market to pay my property tax or to eat or to right. for living expenses, when the market subsequently goes up, those shares are don't participate. Right. So, so it's not a timing thing where I've got that money to go back in. It's a, I've exhausted that resource. Mm -hmm. It's a permanent destruction of capital at that point. So you, you want to make sure that you're always invested in the stock market, which is where your growth's going to be, that a portion of your portfolio should be invested in the stock market no matter what. Correct. So, you know, therefore, I'm thinking to myself, well, then I should probably have a substantial portion of my portfolio that's not in the stock market, like a bond ladder, that in, but then I'm sacrificing the growth that would be, you know, normally in the stock portfolio. So how do you, I mean, you know, how, how do you adjust to that? So um, if you're selling from profits, if the markets are up and, and they're, they're exceeding your expected rate of return or your projection and right. you're selling excess, then, then that's easy. You okay. know, what, what you're trying to do is prevent the market hit 
and your withdrawal compounding that hit to your principal on the growth engine part right. of the portfolio. Right. So that's why having the, the latter, and maybe you take it from your normal fixed income. Maybe your 60-40 portfolio mm -hmm. becomes a 70-30, and instead of having that fixed income as part of your overall allocation, we carve that out, and that is its own separate account. That's a liability match mm -hmm. part of mm -hmm. your portfolio. Um, and also, the equities that you're in, making sure that the types of portfolios that you're investing in produce good risk-adjusted rates of return. The same rate of return with lower volatility. Um, surprisingly, even in accumulation, mm -hmm. portfolios that have the same net compounded rate of return with lower volatility, the majority of the time produce a higher ending expected value. There's a small percentage of the time uh -huh. where you get an outsized performance from the high volatility one, but it's very small and not worth you know, betting your, your, your outcome on. Right. The volatility, dampening volatility, which people normally think, gee, if I'm dampening volatility, those are probably more defensive issues, and the upside's not going to be as great. I'm sacrificing performance. Yeah. You're saying not the case. Not the case. Okay. You know, we run a dividend portfolio. Right. So tell me about, so you have a strategy that you've been running since 2012 for separate accounts mm -hmm. called the macro dividend strategy, mm -hmm. right? That's been ranked very highly by Morningstar. Yeah. So how does that work? You know, what, what is that strategy and, and what's it doing in your portfolios? How, how is it behaving in your portfolio? So um, uh, relative to its benchmarks, mm -hmm. it has produced uh, volatility that's 20% less volatile than the S&P or its, its uh, value the benchmark. The Russell 1000 value is right. its benchmark, and right um, in the S&P. Mm -hmm. um, and it's produced returns that were in excess of those uh, right. two indices. And what that means to you as an investor, um, we ran numbers on the stock market, long-term performance with its average volatility, mm -hmm. drawing 5% from that portfolio, 20% chance you'll run out of money. Same expected rate of return with 20% less volatility, you cut your chance of running out of money in half. Hmm. So what, to 10%? To 10%. After 30 years? Versus 20. There are a lot of dividend strategies sure. out there. So, we, so what kind of a dividend strategy? We, we generally buy uh, quality companies. Um, you know, our portfolio in 2018 was down less than 1%. Mm -hmm. um, and the value index was down about 9 mm -hmm. on the S&P, several percentage points, obviously. Right. Um, so we, we buy companies that are earning more than their dividend, uh, generally have good financials, uh, you know, strong financials. Um, we're, we equal weight the positions generally. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. um, so we don't want to fall in love with a stock that runs up and gets to be too large of a percentage of the portfolio where if it gets hurt um, by something that's unexpected, it has a disproportionate impact on the portfolio. But um, it is good quality companies that have distinct advantages versus their peers, right. uh, brand loyalty, niches, Things that if I gave you... I'm looking like Starbucks and Abbott and uh, Cisco, Microsoft, Union Pacific, those kind of companies. Yeah. Well-known names, Diageo. And, right. and, and those are companies that people love those brands mm -hmm. and they're going to be loyal to those brands. They'll be willing to pay a bit of a premium. We really like those type of companies that can weather a storm if, if we have a downturn in the economy. Right. And they're, they're, if you look at those brands, they tend to not be commodities that mm -hmm. are competing on price. I'm, I'm thinking that uh, what are some of the other volatility dampeners? And, and certainly, you know, we talked about bond ladders. We talked about some, you know, very solid uh, dividend-paying stocks that, that it, such as are in your dividend strategy. 
What about, I mean, cash? What about treasury bonds? What about um, REIT? You know, the thing with cash is it's actually starting to earn a, a measurable return. Right. You know, and it's getting close to uh, inflation, which mm-hmm. is good. Um, uh, it is, uh, when you're looking at dampening volatility or managing risk, you can aro- avoid risk, manage risk, and transfer risk. And, and cash is a risk avoidance strategy. It's, you know, it's liquid. You're, you're not going to earn over long periods of time a rate of return that net of the taxes um, is going to exceed inflation. So your purchasing power will erode and it's death by a thousand little cuts. You know, mm-hmm. a li- each year over time, it's worth a li- buys a little bit less, a little bit less. And, and that's manageable. You know, uh, it, it's worse. It, it's not as bad as a, a big hit. Right. Um, you know, we have global equities because if you look at the price earnings ratios on international equities versus mm-hmm. US equities you know there's there's a fair spread right. you know, same industry a car manufacturer car manufacturer no europe for instance uh, is yes. right so so those are things that that um, rebalancing your portfolio right. looking at historical um, relative valuations on things that you own and when one of them gets outsized rebalancing back to that weighting will naturally sell high buy low Mm-hmm. Um, so those are things that are all disciplined, structured, mechanical things that everyone knows they're supposed to do, like drinking eight, you know, eight glasses of water a day mm-hmm. and getting a half hour of cardio in that nobody does mm-hmm. um, because, hey, my stocks are doing great. Bond yields are bad. Why am I going to do that? The U.S. is doing well. Internationals. Right. I'm not going to sell this great performer to buy this dog. Well, you know, that's... Those are things that are wonderful for producing better risk-adjusted returns, dampening volatility. Mm-hmm. They're just um, counterintuitive, and they're, they require a lot of discipline to execute. When do I instigate the fire drill plan? I think it's three to five years before you retire okay. that we, we, we start doing that. And So maybe we should do it just as a matter of course. I mean, just, you know, should everyone, if they can, plan to work part-time or, or just... Or, or not withdraw the full 5% from their retirement funds. And I think that that I mean, is it just, I that's think, just the way we should do it five years in and five years. I think the answer to that before. question is going to be unique to each person. The, the most important thing that, that we hope to get across to clients when they come to talk to us, whether they choose to work with us or someone else mm-hmm. or do it themselves, is that this is a very different sport with different rules mm-hmm. and different skill sets. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, what should we all own some of? Um, I, I think that a uh, you know, broad-based, globally uh, diverse uh, um, portfolio. So you know, if we're going to... Stock portfolio? Uh, uh, balanced portfolio? So, so I, I think that a, a cornerstone of someone's portfolio, having a you know, broad 60-40 uh, uh, mix that has U.S. and international, large and small, uh, as well as domestic and international uh, fixed income as a cornerstone mm-hmm. and something that you can build off of. But I think that that is a good, solid foundation for someone. And, and most of the big brands have a, a, a you know, cornerstone that they can use uh, right. for that. All right. Mark Curtasso, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack. It's always a pleasure to have you on. It's always a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Consuelo. Thanks. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's Action Point picks up on Mark Cortazzo's dividend strategy. It is take advantage of the income and defensive qualities of dividend-paying stocks. 
One of my favorite personal finance gurus is Morningstar's Christine Benz, a longtime WealthTrack guest. Benz recently wrote two articles about dividend-paying funds and ETFs, one about dividend growers, which focuses on companies with a multi-year history of increasing their dividends every year. The other article, which I am reporting on today, is about dividend yielders, companies whose priority is paying generous dividends with high current yields. The article is titled, Three Funds with Tantalizing Dividend Yields, and they are indeed, in this case, better than two and three quarters percent. First on the list is Schwab U.S. Dividend Equity ETF. It carries a silver analyst rating from Morningstar, and it focuses on the higher-yielding half of the 2,500 largest U.S. stocks, excluding REITs. It emphasizes not only companies that have consistently paid dividends over the last decade, but also score well on various profitability measures. The second name is their only actively managed fund. It is Vanguard Equity Income Fund. It also carries a silver analyst rating. As Benz notes, it is run by two separate management teams plying complementary strategies. One team is from Wellington, which finds dividend-paying companies that appear inexpensive relative to their growth prospects. The other team is from Vanguard, applying a quantitative approach. Benz's third pick is the Vanguard High Dividend Yield ETF. Also rated silver, Ben says it avoids the big sector bets normally found in traditional high-yield funds like financials, utilities, and energy stocks by the way it weights the portfolio. These three funds combine higher-quality companies, defensive characteristics, and those tantalizing dividend yields Ben's was looking for. Next week, we turn our attention to finding global growth prospects. Artisan International's Mark Yockey joins us for an exclusive interview. In this week's extra feature on WealthTrack.com, Mark Cortazzo shares why mentoring new hires is so important to his firm's culture and success. An important part of our success is connecting with you on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for engaging with us. Have a super weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.